open your Bibles, I invite you to turn to uh, Matthew chapter 21, and we do want to look at verses 23 through uh, 32 this morning, conflict over Christ's authority. And let's ask the Lord to uh, bless our study. Father, we do thank you for your word now. Give me grace to teach accurately and clearly and make the uh, applications that would be helpful for us as far as where we live today as well. So we commit our study to you. Bring Christ's name. Amen. Note uh, on the overhead, we have the theme, which is uh, Christ the King, and then the outline of the book, and we have worked our way down to that section in chapters 21 through 23, the formal rejection of the King. Well, what we call Passion Week, the last week of Christ's earthly ministry, began in earnest on what we call Palm Sunday, with what is commonly referred to as Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Well, this triggered a negative response from the religious leaders that grew in escalation uh, throughout the week, culminating in the crucifixion of Christ. Well, right in the middle of this rising tension of hostility between uh, Christ, or really towards Christ, uh, we have this cryptic event in which Christ curses a fig tree after not finding any fruit on it. I mean, it professed to have fruit, in that it had leaves, but it had no fruit, and so Christ cursed it. Well, the significance of this story has long baffled everyone, including Bible commentators. R.C. Sproul wrote, quote, The biblical accounts of Jesus' cursing of the fig tree have vexed scholars for centuries. For one thing, this perplexing narrative records for us the only miracle in the New Testament that involves destruction. Furthermore, on the surface, it seems that Jesus overreacted to this innocent fig tree for not bearing fruit when it was not the season for figs. The late Bertrand Russell, who wrote an essay titled, Why I Am Not a Christian, cited this narrative as one of his reasons for repudiating Christianity. He said this incident displays Jesus as a man who expressed vindictive fury to an innocent plant, manifesting behavior that was not of a righteous man, let alone the Son of God. That was Bertrand Russell. Um, Obviously, this story is very significant, as seen in the fact that not only did Matthew record it, but also so did Mark. The Wycliffe Bible Commentary at this point speaks for a great many conservative Bible scholars when they say, although there is no statement that the situation should be regarded as parabolic, as a parable, that seems to be the only reasonable explanation of the incident, for trees have no moral responsibility. It provided a graphic sequel to the earlier parable in Luke 13 regarding the Jewish nation. Unfruitful, despite every advantage. Well, there are a number of reasons to think Christ was using this as an object lesson at this point. For one thing, consistently, when Christ did miracles, they had sign value. He didn't just do miracles to do miracles. He didn't just curse his tree, just curse his tree either. Uh, For example, when Christ fed the 5,000, not including women and children, he then followed that up by saying, I am the bread of life. When Jesus said, I am the light of the world, he then followed that up by healing a man born blind. So consistently, 
we see when Jesus does something miraculously, it has sign value. And so when he miraculously cursed this fig tree, it is most probable that it had in view a symbolic purpose. And with that in mind, the entire surrounding context relates to Israel's rejection of her Messiah as led by her religious leaders, which in turn causes Christ to repeatedly pronounce judgment upon them. Thus, the contextual argument as to the meaning of the cursing of the fig tree is that this was symbolic of judgment being pronounced against Israel. To show all the more that apart from this understanding, it makes no sense, Mark eleven thirteen adds this detail. It was not the season for figs. Why would Christ curse a fig tree for not having figs when it was not even the season for them? Therefore, it would seem that this only makes sense if there's an intended object lesson being portrayed that is reflective of what is happening in the immediate context. Context. And what is the exact context? Well, we think the chronology uh, is brought out in Mark's gospel. And uh, here's what we have there. Jesus curses the fig tree. Then he cleanses the temple. And then he explains his cursing of the fig tree. That's the chronological outlay here. So Thomas Constable says this. Its structure provides the key to its interpretation. First, Jesus cursed the fig tree. Then he cleansed the temple. And finally, he came back to the fig tree with a lesson for the disciples. There is unity of subject matter in the whole section. I think that's true. Once again, context is king in trying to discern the meaning. And the flow of thought involving judgment continues into our study today. What has just been illustrated in Matthew 21 in relation to the cursing of the fig tree connects thematically to what now flows in terms of conflict with the religious authorities and then Christ's parabolic judgment on them as seen in the remainder of the chapter extending on even into chapter 22. So let's pick it up at uh, chapter 21, Matthew 21, verse 23. Now, when he came into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people confronted him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? The word now in the Greek is a connective, showing there is a continuation of thought here. The cursing of the fig tree relates to the conflict that follows, which in turn connects to the parables of judgment. This is now Tuesday. Christ has just cursed the fig tree, and then he goes to the temple, evidently to the court of the Gentiles. Uh, The Temple Mount was impressive in Jesus' day. Herod had remodeled it, and really it was quite a place, 35 acres. And uh, he undoubtedly went into the court of the Gentiles, this large area uh, surrounding, you know, the most inner part of of the temple. But the court of the Gentiles, part of the complex, that's probably where he was teaching at this point. And as he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders uh, interrupted him. They confronted him, saying, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? These were the key religious leaders in Israel. 
and very probably were representative of the Sanhedrin, which was the Supreme Court in Israel. You see, they considered themselves, especially the chief priests, they considered themselves to be those who had charge of the temple. This was their place. They considered themselves to be the defenders of God's truth and the keepers of the temple. In their minds, they were the authority in charge, or so they thought. And so they made the issue one of authority. I mean, who, who do you think you are doing this? The word authority signifies one who has the right to do something. So they are saying, who or what gives you the right to do the things you're doing here at the temple? Now, the Jews put a lot of stock in their human credentials and their recognized status. You see, only an ordained rabbi, elder, priest, or judge was thought to have any real authoritative credentials. You had to be ordained. You had to be recognized. You see, the problem was, what did Jesus have going for him? Oh, he was from Nazareth. Oh, that's not such a great credential. I mean, it's a place of ill repute. Uh, he had no formal education. Uh, he had no, no, no ranking. Jesus had none of these things. He didn't go to their schools. He didn't have a PhD. Sorry. He didn't work his way up through the ranks, through their ranks. You see, they considered him untrained, unofficially recognized, and merely self-appointed, and therefore not legitimate. Therefore, they challenged him, hoping to discredit him in front of all these people, if he claimed to be doing this on the basis of being the Son of God, they would consider that blasphemy and seek to stir up the crowd with blasphemy charges, which called for the death penalty. You see, they had previously tried to kill him on the basis of blasphemy, as seen in John 5 and then again in John chapter 10. If he merely claimed to be a man without any credentials, without any authority backing him, then they would accuse him of sinful action against the holy temple and against them as the authorized custodians of it. Either way, their goal was to try to trap him in front of the whole crowd and try to get them to turn against him. Well, when they challenge him about these things, what gives you the authority to do these things, they probably had in view his, disrupt, his disrupting of the commercial activities of the temple the day before. And then his ongoing teaching ministry that was taking place right then. In the parallel text of Luke, it says in Luke 19 that Jesus during these days was preaching the gospel. And that the people, quote, were very attentive to hear him. I mean, Jesus spoke with authority. And it was riveting. And the people, the crowds were attentive, listening in. In addition, these leaders also may have in the back of their minds his triumphal entry, his accepting praise as the Messiah, and his healing people in the temple. But in particular, it would seem that they were probably especially upset about his clearing the temple the day before, and now his boldness to once again show up on the scene, teaching in the temple the very next day. I mean, this is their turf. What do you think you're doing? Throwing everybody out here yesterday, and now you're back here doing What gives you the right to do this? So they're confronting him over the issue of authority. That's the whole issue here. What, what gives you the right? The issue of authority is a lordship issue. 
And it became the great controversy in view behind the growing hostility of these religious leaders. You see, they felt threatened and they sought to destroy him, as it says in Luke 1947. They were clearly out to get him. They were not here with open minds. They were here seeking any means by which they could destroy him. Well, Jesus was more than up to their challenge. Notice verse 24, 25 and 26. But Jesus answered and said to them, I also will ask you one thing. I I too have a question. Which, if you tell me, I likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John. Where was it from? From heaven or from men? And they reasoned among themselves saying, just a minute, we need to confer. (laughs) Uh, Jesus never had to do this, right? Jesus said, let me get my disciples together and I'll get back to you. They had to confer. Uh, They reasoned among themselves saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the multitude. For all count John as a prophet. Christ's response was to tie his ministry to that of John the Baptist. It's, it's so interesting how Christ, you know, he kind of always surprises us. It's kind of like, if, if you're to say, by what authority are you doing these things? You know, you don't necessarily expect that he would, the, the first exhibit A would be John the Baptist. But that's where he goes. And it was brilliant. So brilliant that immediately it threw these hostile objectors on the horns of a dilemma that they didn't see coming. It was a marvelous demonstration of wisdom that totally befuddled his opponents. And God has a way of doing that. It says in 1 Corinthians 3.19, the wisdom of of this world is foolishness with God. John's baptism, in effect, refers to his entire ministry, which was characterized by a baptism of repentance. Baptism at core signifies identification. I mean, the word baptism has two meanings. The primary meaning means to dip under. The secondary meaning is to dip into dye, with the idea that if you take a piece of cloth and you dip it into dye, it is permanently identified with the dye. Really, at core with baptism is always this idea of identification. To be baptized by John indicated that one was identifying with his message of repentance. It was a baptism of repentance. It signified repentance in preparation for the Lord. He goes before the Lord, calling the people to repentance so that when the Lord shows up, they'll be ready to receive him. Well, in asking whether John's baptism was from heaven, meaning God ordained, or from men, Christ was asking about what was the source of authority of his ministry. That's really what they were asking him. And Christ is is, uh, really getting to that point. Really, in giving the proper answer to the question, they they would have the answer to their own question. Because, you see, John's ministry was inherently linked to the truth of who Jesus was. This is all about who Jesus is. What was brilliant 
Because you see, uh, John had no credentials either. He didn't go to their schools either. John had no credentials other than the fulfillment of prophecy, which of course is a heavenly credential that totally verifies his authenticity. And everyone considered John to be a prophet. And if he was a true prophet, then what he said about Jesus was true and should be accepted. Now, give them just a a teensy-weensy little bit of credit for reasoning. In terms of thinking through the ramifications of how they might answer, they did think about it. I mean, and they were smart enough to realize that if they said from heaven, then Jesus would counter with, well, why didn't you believe him? (laughs) What are we doing here, guys? Why didn't you believe him? He told you I was the son of God. Did that answer your question? Uh, They had enough sense. No, we're not going there. They knew full well the testimony of John. And they knew full well that John claimed to be the fulfillment of Isaiah 40, verse 3. And as such, he was the forerunner to the Messiah. Remember uh, in Isaiah 40, verse 3, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. John, they said, who are you, John? And John quoted this from Isaiah. John 1, 23, he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. He told them who he was. They knew full well of John's testimony that he clearly declared that Jesus is the Son of God. In John 1, 34, This is John's testimony. I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. That's his testimony. This is who he is. He's the Son of God. And in Acts chapter 19, Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him. That is on Christ Jesus. So to endorse John's ministry as being from heaven would in effect mean to believe in Jesus as the Son of God, who is the Messiah, which they absolutely refused to do. And to acknowledge Jesus as Messiah God would clearly mean that his authority was from God. Again, they refused to go there. To do so would mean to condemn themselves for not believing it. But on the other hand, they also had another problem. Because if they said John's ministry was just of man, just man-centered, that would be a political problem. Because the people all considered John to be a prophet. We're going to set ourselves at odds against the whole populace here if we take that stand. I love it. They were trying to trap Jesus, but in truth, he turned this around on them to where they were trapped with no way out. Either way they answered, they would be in trouble. Lesson number one, never try to outsmart Jesus. You're going to lose. Jesus never lost an argument. In fact, when he asked the questions, his critics were dumbfounded consistently. His wisdom was so profound. As they said in John 7, 46, no man ever spoke like this man. Verse 27. So after conferring... Verse 27, so they answered Jesus and said, we do not know. 
And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Here they show what they were made of. They were dishonest and they were cowards. They were dishonest cowards. They feared men instead of having a proper fear of God. This is the stuff of politics instead of true God-honoring conviction and principle. They were game players, religious game players, which is the worst sort of player. And so they were evasive, not willing to answer the question. And Jesus in response said, okay, you want to play that game? All right, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. As a footnote here, as the esteemed religious leaders in Israel, they were charged with being able to discern who was a true teacher and who was not. Thus, pleading ignorance was really an admission that they were not qualified to be spiritual leaders. They were a total sham. And the point is made. If they did not know whether John's ministry was from heaven, from God, then who were they to make any kind of judgment call about Christ's ministry, especially since they were linked together? Those that reject the light that is given are not given more light. If they would not be honest with the truth, then Jesus would not give them any more. I mean, why should he tell them what they already knew but were unwilling to admit? Stanley Toussaint says this, They were judged by Christ in his refusal to answer much the same question the disciples had asked him. You know, how, by, how are you doing this? In effect, by what authority? How did the fig tree wither? The Lord indicates his rejection of them. This fact is borne out by the following parables. So Christ had one more thing to say here. Actually, several more uh, parables. But he had one more parting shot at them in the form of a parable. Uh, Christ dealt with unbelief in the form of parables. And so here it is. But in this case, he does it in such a way that it serves to further expose them for the religious hypocrites that they were. Christ then proceeded to give a series of three parables that were so indicting that the religious leaders actually got it. And you know what they got? Well, we'll get there eventually. But here's what they got. Now, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking of them. They got it. He's targeting us with these parables. And what do we have in these parables? Parable one, which we will look at this morning. Rejection of John the Baptist. And in rejecting John the Baptist, you are rejecting Christ. Parable two, rejection of the Son, more specifically. And parable three, rejection of the invitation that has gone out. These parables focused on the issue of either acceptance or rejection of Christ and need to be understood in light of the preceding context of verses 23 through 27, which is all about the issue of Christ's authority. That was a problem. This is the sticking problem. We have a problem with his authority because we have a problem with who he claims to be and who John said he was. The great issue before the nation and before the leaders of the nation was the issue of Christ's lordship authority. The first parable is a stinging rebuke of these religious leaders for their failure to obey John's call to repentance and to embrace Jesus as the messianic son of God. So here he goes, verse 28. 
But what do you think? He could have said, but do you think? No, 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 no. But what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go, work today in my vineyard. Well, the owner of the vineyard represents God. And the two sons represent two different responses in Israel to the ministry of John the Baptist, and hence to Jesus as Messiah. So, uh, the first son answered and said, I will not. No, not going to go work there. But afterward, he regretted it and he went. So the first son represents the sinners in Israel who before John's ministry were living in flagrant disobedience, flagrant rebellion. But then under John's ministry, they came to repentance. Note the connection here between genuine repentance and a change in action. Uh, Edward Hinson writes, No one who truly repents fails to show clear evidence of his inner heart change by his outward obedience. I think that's backed up by 1 John 2, 3. Now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. I mean, if you don't, if you don't keep his commandments, you're a liar. He's, he's not your Lord. He, he, you, know, you don't recognize his authority. Verse 30 He came to the second and said, likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir. But he did not go. The second son represents the religious hypocrites in Israel, who initially claimed to be obedient and responsive to John's ministry. And yet as time went along, they clearly came to reject him and his God-ordained ministry. Uh, In John 5, 35, we read, speaking of John the Baptist, he was the burning and shining lamp. And you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. For a time. Wow, this is exciting. We got revival going on in Israel. Everybody's going out to hear John the Baptist. They were all excited. So for a time, they seemingly rejoiced in John the Baptist's ministry. But when John the Baptist called the religious leaders out on their sin... And called them to repentance, they turned on him. Note here in Matthew chapter 3, this is John the Baptist, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism. So there's a lot of these people. These are the religious leaders. There's many of them. They're coming to John for baptism. How wonderful. We got revival going on here. Not so so fast. Uh, John wasn't having it. He knew what these people were all about. They're all about one more religious ritual. They're all about outward external uh, rituals and formalities and legalism. And so he saw many of them coming. And and (laughs) he had some boldness. Give him that. He had some holy boldness. He said to them, brood of vipers, I have never once yet addressed an audience that way. (laughs) I don't start there. Uh, There's sometimes I felt like it, uh, you know. But anyway, not not this audience, but uh, others. Uh, You know, I've had some funeral services where I don't know there was a single soul out there that was saved. Somebody just calls me up and unsaved. We had some time, one time, well, Vince, you were helping me out this service. And uh, these people didn't want to hear that message. And so they got up and they started milling around. I, I just stopped. So let's pray. I stopped mid, you know, it's like, I could have said, you brood of vipers. <laughs> I didn't do it. Uh, but he did. You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Therefore, bear fruits. Worthy of repentance. That's what his whole ministry is about. 
It's not about just some ritual. It's about repentance. He says, let's see the fruits. Let's see the fruits of repentance. And then I'll baptize you. Then I'll believe you're legitimate. Then you'll really be identifying with my message of repentance. But here's what happened as you go on. Luke 7. When all the people heard him, even the tax collectors justified God, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. They rejected this this ministry of a call to repentance. So these religious leaders refused to align with John's message of repentance. That's the bottom line. You see, they were good with it on the level of religious ritual. But the emphasis on repentance, which John's baptism signified, they could not go along with that. The point of this parable was to point out the hypocrisy of Israel's religious leaders. The disobedient, hypocritical son said, I will, I will, but then was guilty of not following through. Again, In type, this corresponds to the leafy fig tree, which outwardly professed to be there, but in fact was phony. That was these religious leaders. ESV study Bible. The fruit of one's life ultimately proves whether or not one is obedient to God's message. A person's actions ultimately prove whether or not he is obedient to God. Remember Jesus back in Matthew 7? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. No, what Jesus made the emphasis. It's not just talking. The the proof is in the doing. There are talkers and there are doers, and a mere talker does not a believer make. John Bunyan wrote, At the day of doom, men shall be judged according to their fruits. It will not be said then, did you believe? But were you doers or talkers only? You see, talk is cheap. And if it's not backed up by doing, it is shown to be bogus. In 1 John, there are professors and there are possessors. A mere professor is self-deceived. Indeed, there are degrees of fruit and there's inconsistency at certain points. But if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. He has the Holy Spirit. And God is faithful to discipline his children to build holiness into their lives, unless they're illegitimate. Hebrews chapter 12. Verse 31. Which of the two, he says, which of the two did the will of his father? And they said to him, the first. Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. Christ set them up with a very simple question. One that is so easy that no one could miss it. He asked, which of the two did the will of his father? And of course, they answered the first. I mean, the one who actually went and did the work. But in answering the question, these religious leaders unwittingly condemned themselves as Christ will go on to show. The irony is that while they refused to answer Christ's earlier question. In the parable that follows, Christ got them to answer in a way that indicted themselves. Again, only a fool tries to trick or outsmart Christ. He never loses. Only losers take him on. Lesson, don't play mind games with Jesus. Your mind just can't keep up. 
And then Jesus made this application saying, Assuredly, I say to you, tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. Wow. This was shocking and it was insulting. You, you understand? We're talking to those, the whole nation considered the most spiritual. Jesus is actually saying that the tax collectors and harlots, the worst of society, were entering the kingdom before these esteemed religious leaders. It was shocking because, you see, tax collectors and harlots were considered by the Jews to generally be the scum of the earth. You can't get any lower than this. Tax collectors were, were after all, Jews who were considered to be traitors because they franchised out to Rome to be tax collectors. And as they did so, they were guilty of extortion, extorting the people out of money. Harlots were immoral, living in obvious rebellion to the law of God. No one thought they would see the kingdom. It's just obvious. But here Jesus put both of these categories of ill reputes before the religious leaders. But note carefully the word before. Again, Toussaint says, the present tense and the prefix before indicate that it was still possible for the leaders to enter the kingdom. Therefore, by pointing out their sin, the king was acting in grace. In other words, the tax collectors and the harlots who had repented at John's ministry had already established their place in the kingdom to come and thus had entered in before these religious leaders. But the door of grace was still open even to them if they would repent. Again, Stanley Toussaint says, it is well to note that while the kingdom is no longer proclaimed as having drawn near, entrance is still being accomplished. By the way, a little footnote here. In saving faith, we enter into a kingdom position. That's our position. We're now kingdom citizens. Although in practice, the actual kingdom remains future. The same is true in regard to heaven, by the way. Right now, the believer is said to be seated together with Christ in heavenly places, Ephesians 2.6. That's our position, spiritually speaking. But we're not actually in heaven yet. I know you're close being here at Southview this morning, but we're not there yet. And the same is true of the kingdom. Upon saving faith, the Bible in Colossians 1.13 says we are conveyed into the kingdom of the Son. That's our spiritual position. But we're not actually in the kingdom yet. We are still praying as Christ taught us to pray. Your kingdom come. It hasn't come yet. You see, the kingdom comes with the king. The king's not here yet. But he's one day going to come and set up his kingdom. And we're going to have a place in it as believers. Now it is evident from texts like uh, Luke 7, 29 and 30 that many tax collectors and sinners ultimately responded positively to the Lord Jesus Christ. We get a feel for this in Luke chapter 15. Then all the tax collectors and sinners drew near to hear him. They were interested. And the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. They had this, you know, holier-than-thou attitude, self-righteous attitude. Tax collectors and sinners were open on a level that the religious leaders were not. In fact, they complained about Jesus receiving them. Well, Jesus then further explains the meaning of his parable. Verse 32. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did.
did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the harlots believed him. And when you saw it, you did not afterward relent and believe him. Three times in this verse, the issue is made to believe. John came proclaiming a message of repentance. That was the major essence of his ministry. He came to prepare the people to receive the coming Messiah by calling them to repentance. And those truly repentant indicated that in getting baptized, which is why it was called a baptism of repentance. Now, we have already noted, as seen in Matthew 3, 7, and 8, that it was not the baptism itself that caused people to get right. This is seen in the fact that the religious leaders initially came to get baptized, but John told them to go and bear fruits worthy of repentance. It was not essentially about the ritual. It was really about the repentance. And of course, if one was truly repentant, then they would indicate that in getting baptized. You see, baptism didn't cause the repentance. It just symbolized it. In John's baptism, the people were saying, I'm repenting of my sin. I'm getting right with God in anticipation of the coming Messiah who will bring in the kingdom. Thus, those truly repentant were ready to receive the Messiah and go into the kingdom. Now, notice this phrase here. John came in the way of righteousness. Righteousness means rightness. That which is right. He came in a keeping with what is right. John taught the right way and that the way to be right with God was through repentance, through accepting Jesus as the promised Messiah who is the Son of God. The marks of John's ministry could be summarized in this way. Prepared the way for the Messiah. Called the people to repentance. Introduced Jesus to the, to the nation. Promised a kingdom on the condition of repentance. So in the way of righteousness means showing the people the way in which they could be right with God. And thereby go into the kingdom. Indeed, John's ministry was from heaven. It was truly in the way of righteousness. William MacDonald says, the expression, John came to you in the way of righteousness, means that he came preaching the necessity of, of righteousness through repentance and faith. Now, consistent with this, Peter in Acts chapter 3, 19 through 21, would later say to the Jews that they needed to repent and be converted so that they could be forgiven and that Jesus could come and bring in the kingdom. John's ministry of repentance was about people coming to where they admitted they were wrong and that God was right. And in this way, they were able to get right with God. That's what repentance is about. Repentance literally means to have a change of mind. And it's a change of mind about sin that says, I'm wrong and God is right. I'm aligning my thinking with God's truth. Luke 7.29 describes repentance as people, quote, declaring God just. Or you could say, declaring God right. As seen in the ESV, declaring God just. That's what repentance is. It acknowledges that God is right and I am wrong. And in doing so, it lines up with God's truth. Thus, John came in the way of righteousness in that he called people to repentance and pointed the way to Christ. 
Now, in pointing people to Christ, John did two things. There's two major emphasis here. Number one, he pointed to Christ as the Lamb of God. And he pointed to Jesus as the Son of God. These are the two great things we must believe in order to be saved. Commonly expressed as receiving Christ as Savior and Lord. These are the two great points necessary to believe in order to be right with God. Note uh, the emphasis in John chapter 1. The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then, a few verses later, verse 34, I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. Jesus spoke of a righteousness necessary to enter the kingdom that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. Back in uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, Jesus said, I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. You see, the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees was all about an outward, legalistic type of righteousness. It was self-oriented. The way of righteousness presented by John was all about an internal reality, a heart reality, being right in the heart on the basis of repentance and believing in Jesus for who he is as the Lamb of God, who is the Son of God. So it was an internal spiritual reality that John was talking about. Repentance of the heart and not just an outward legalistic thing. The true way of righteousness is an inward spiritual reality which then demonstrates itself in the life. That's what John's ministry was all about. Note that Peter, in 2 Peter 2.21, refers to the gospel as, quote, the way of righteousness. That's how he describes it. He also referred to Noah as a preacher of righteousness. Thus, the way of righteousness denotes the content of John's message on how a person can be right with God on the basis of repentance. Well, Jesus made the issue one of belief, saying, And you did not believe him. You see, even these religious leaders realized this was the issue. Remember what they said back in verse 25? They said, He will say to us then, Why then did you not believe him? The issue is one of belief. This was their problem. They didn't really believe the message from God through John, and therefore they didn't believe in Jesus either. They refused to change their mind about their sin, repent, and therefore they didn't believe. Well, in contrast, the tax collectors and the harlots did repent and believe, and it changed their lives. Note how Jesus says this. The tax collectors and the harlots believed, and they believed in such a way that it could be seen in their lives. And this serves as a further indictment of these religious leaders because Jesus says, quote, And when you saw it, that is, saw the faith of these tax collectors and harlots on display, when you saw it, you did not afterward relent and believe him. Not only would they not believe John, but they refused to believe in the light of the evidence of the changed lives as seen in believing tax collectors and harlots. Before God, changed lives are a major source of evidence for the truth of his word, and he holds people accountable 
for this evidence. Well, let's wrap this up, shall we? In this first parable, Jesus attaches the proof of his authority to the authenticity of John the Baptist's ministry, which is really profound when you think about it. You see, his ministry is closely linked to that of John the Baptist. As surely as one was ordained by heaven, so was the other. I mean, they're linked together. The messenger, the forerunner, and the Messiah. Prophetically, you can't separate them. Yeah, you can in terms of their function, ultimately. But in terms of inherently linked, Jesus essentially linked their ministries as seen at the time of his baptism. You see, in coming to John the Baptist for baptism, Jesus said to John, and remember what baptism essentially means? It always has the idea of identification. Uh, He wasn't coming to John identifying with the need for repentance. Jesus never had any sin. That was not the the idea of identification there. Uh, But when he came for baptism to John, Jesus said to him, Thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Baptism symbolizes identification. And in being baptized by John, Jesus was identifying with John the Baptist's message in that he was the fulfillment of it. Selah. The evidence of John the Baptist's ministry being from heaven is seen in the fact that he fulfilled the forerunner prophecies to the letter. 700 years before the time of Christ, Isaiah said a voice would come crying in the wilderness, saying, prepare the way of the Lord. How's that ever going to work? Try that. Just try this. Find yourself a wilderness. I know you've got something down in Bellevue. Maybe go over there. Go out in the wilderness deep and start crying. See how that works. (laughs) I'll bet you're not going to get a large audience. 400 years before the time of Christ, the Lord in Malachi 3.1 said he would send his messenger before him, John the Baptist. And then the Lord would come suddenly to his temple, which in partial fulfillment had happened just shortly before this. Think about how impossibly hard it is to rig a forerunner, especially 700 years in advance. I mean, it has to be predicted hundreds of years in advance and then be fulfilled to the letter. The forerunner had to be born at just the right time, just the right place, just the right character, just the right message. That was John. He came crying in the wilderness in perfect accord with Scripture. He came living a righteous life with the right message of how to get right with God. And it was an explosive national ministry in spite of the fact that he's out here in the wilderness, which was... More of a, like a barren area out there where nobody goes out. And John totally pointed to Christ, making the issue solely about Jesus and not about himself. Every detail about his life from, be, from before he was born aligned perfectly with the prophetic scriptures. Thus, the religious leaders were tremendously accountable for rejecting all this plain evidence that aligned perfectly with prophecy. They had no excuse Jesus, in effect, said, if you want evidence for my authority over the temple, look to the evidences found in John the Baptist, my forerunner, who fulfills the forerunner prophecies about the Messiah. All the prophecies related to him have been fulfilled to the letter as he pointed to me as a son of God. The evidence was more than ample. 
The problem was that these religious leaders refused to believe. They refused to repent and they refused to believe. And for this reason, they did not have a place in the kingdom. And unless at some point they came to the place of repentance and faith, they will never see the kingdom. The pattern of John and Jesus sets the pattern for New Testament faith. John emphasized repentance. And then as Jesus comes on the scene, we are called to believe in him as the object of our faith. John pointed out our sin problem and the necessity of repentance, acknowledging our sin problem, that we're wrong and we need to get right with God. Paul brought it all together. Notice one verse, kind of summarizing his entire ministry here in Acts chapter 20. He says, testifying to the Jews and also to Greeks, repentance toward God. Admitting we're wrong. And God is right. And faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. The answer to our sin problem. Our God Savior. We put our faith in Him. This is the way of rightness. This is how you are made right with God. John MacArthur writes, I think the greatest proof of the supernatural character of the Bible is Christ Himself. It would be impossible for a person, no matter how brilliant or wise, no matter how educated, or even a group of persons, some kind of committee to invent Jesus Christ. Impossible! Impossible to put together all those elements of the Old Testament that picture him, that predict him in detail. That he would be born of a virgin, that he would be born in Bethlehem, that he would come out of Egypt, that he would have a specific type of forerunner. There are so many details no committee could have ever known. And the Bible presents Jesus in an unambiguous and unmistakable way. And the only way you can go look for Jesus and not find him is if you don't believe what the Bible says. Exactly! You want proof of Christ's authenticity? You want proof of his authority? Consider what Christ presented as exhibit A. The prophetic proof is found in the person of the forerunner, John the Baptist. Only God could predict this forerunner 700 years in advance and then align it perfectly with the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. The only question that remains is, will we believe the prophetic evidence? The religious leaders refused to believe, but the tax collectors and the harlots did believe and thereby secured their position in the kingdom. Well, what about you? Have you believed? Do you have a place in the kingdom? The Bible is clear. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. There is no other way into the kingdom. This is the way of righteousness. Let's stand and have our closing song.